This is a Saddleback Church podcast. The history of Christianity is a road paved by many things. Faith, example, servant-heartedness, generosity, and so much more. But today, I want to focus in on one area in particular. Thought. Christianity, yes, is certainly about faith and love, but it is also a way of thinking, a worldview. And we can see throughout history, uh, we have been able to craft and form a way of thinking that is in line and molded by Scripture. We have a God who made us to appreciate deep thinking, beauty, language, and art. All of these pieces help to inspire us and point us back to our wonderful creator, God. My guest today is Dr. John Mark Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds is the president of the St. Constantine School, and he is a senior fellow of humanities at the King's College in New York City and a fellow of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. He is the former provost of Houston Baptist University and was the founder and director of the Tory Honors Institute, the Socratic Great Books-Centered Honors Program at Biola, which we talk about in our conversation. And today, I talk with Dr. Reynolds about the connection between philosophy and faith, what we can learn from reading great books, and how we have seen thought as a a foundational road for the Christian faith. My name is Jason Wheeland, and this is Doable Discipleship, a Saddleback Church podcast, part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Now, my conversation with Dr. John Mark Reynolds. Dr. Reynolds, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate your time. It's an honor. I I hope I'm still a kind of honorary Southern Californian. I have to say I love (laughs) Texas. Uh, I'm going to stay in Texas, though we're hoping uh, to bring the school and college out to Los Angeles uh, before too much longer. Uh, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Yeah, that'd be be an awesome opportunity. We would love to have you back in the Southern California area. that's exactly (laughs) right. Uh, It is a wonderful time to do this because college has become so expensive, so unaffordable, uh, and there are lots of different reasons for that. And so we've tried to develop a way that for the 75% of people that are getting a generic college degree, you know, they don't end up working in their major. It's kind of a union card for that next job. Uh, Can you go to school and get one-on-one Oxford style tutorials for about $11,000? So that's the project we've been working on here in Houston, uh, slowly spreading, being a couple more cities in the next two years and got to go to LA, right? (laughs) New York City and L.A., those are the two cities uh, that if you're not lucky enough to be in Houston, you should be in those places. I love it. Well, I'm really excited for the future of that opportunity. It'll be something for us to be tracking, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> keep keep watching. Watch this space, as they say. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Uh, so I, I wanted to I wanted to have you on today to talk about the the impact that Western thought throughout history and the great canon, the great books have had on the way that we think as Christians. So to set a foundation for the rest of this conversation, can you 
explain for our listeners right now what the quote unquote great books are or like the Western canon, if you will? Like, what does that mean? And how is something yeah. given this designation? Yeah. So, as usual, if you ask a philosopher a really sensible short question, <laughs> I'm like, give you a really long answer. So I'll try not to do that entirely. Let's keep this very simple. Jesus was born in a particular place and time uh, in God's good providence and everything changed. And he was born in Palestine uh, in the first century in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire embraced the Mediterranean. Uh, The Roman Empire was a mixed bag. Some things about it were good, like Roman law, Roman roads. Uh, Other things were brutal. A Roman peace meant they killed everybody they could find uh, to pacify an area. So Jesus was born into that place and time. And of course, the New Testament itself was written in Greek, uh, a kind of common Greek, the uh, trade Greek for that eastern part of the Roman Empire. Uh, As Christianity grew and developed, it spread across the Roman Empire. It actually went to places like India and China uh, because a trade happened there. Uh, One of the great centers of Christian thought was Aksum, uh, which was a great classical civilization near what we would call Ethiopia. So Christianity spread, but kind of the center of the population remained in uh, the Roman Empire, in that Mediterranean basin. And those people kept thinking of themselves as Romans, even after uh, Rome itself fell and became less important. And out of this Roman Empire came what is often called Western civilization. I mean, it's worth pointing out, there are lots of Eastern geographic countries in Western civilization. What is Russia uh, and how does it fit into all that is a question we're still asking uh, in the news. Uh, I should also add that sometimes by a certain kind of bad player, Uh, in history, West has come to mean a kind of ethnocentric or racist view of kind of cultural superiority. uh, And we want to get rid of that right away. We want to say nothing to do with that whatsoever. Uh, But out of particularly the Western part of the Roman Empire, as it began uh, to get its act together, coming from the kind of Eastern Roman Empire, thinkers like Basil, Uh, and Augustine, then in the West, began to develop an approach to uh, thinking, to knowledge, that would eventually produce the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution. Of course, Christians weren't the only ones involved. Islamic scholars uh, were helpful, uh, and Jewish thinkers, but primarily in Christian lands, uh, whether it was Poland uh, or England or France, places like that, Uh, came the seeds for international law and some other things that are real blessings to us today. Uh, And so the canon are those works that are way down in the basement. They're the foundational works for these ideas. And I often think that it's very practical to read them, because if you understand the foundation, if you understand what everybody in the great conversation that produced the world we live in, Uh, was reading and reacting to, sometimes you can get around, you can see where things are going, you can make better predictions about what will happen. Uh, Plato's Republic sketches out the decline of a democracy, and we can see evidences of those things in our own nation. So there are patterns to history, there are patterns to what happened, and joining in the great conversation that produced so much of the United States today, so much of North America, is critically important. What's nice about the great conversation is what you find when the scientific methods that came out of all this uh, are taken someplace else. 
Uh, the Chinese don't cease to be Chinese. They don't lose Chinese culture. Japanese people don't cease to be Japanese. Uh, ideas don't know race or ethnicity at, at a kind of fundamental level. So they can be embraced uh, everywhere. I spoke in Ulaanbaatar, this is the capital of Mongolia, yeah. which is about as far from what we usually call the West as you can be. But many of these ideas, some negatively, uh, think of Marx that had dominated that country in a negative way. Uh, to understand Mongolia was to get a rich cultural heritage from the Mongolians themselves, but you also had to understand the roots of ideas that to live in modernity, they also had had to adapt to and adopt. Yeah, I think that's such a fascinating idea, that just that you can take, as you said, these foundational works that are, you know, ancient works, you know, just, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old, thousands of years old. Yes. And, but you can see these tenets and, and you can see how they tell a story. They present these ideas that continue to live on. And so for us, as we read back on them is we can see like, yes, they were writing to something at a time, but there's something so core about humanity that they were speaking yes. to something that continues to exist even to this day. Yeah, they're incredibly liberating works. They're the kinds of works that people who want to keep people under tyranny or enslaved uh, never let people read. Uh, my good colleague Anika Prather uh, points out that slaves in the South were kept away from reading, were kept away from the classics. And so many of those who liberated uh, the enslaved who liberated themselves did so by way of the classics, mm -hmm. because the classic conversation is one that anyone can enter into and that every civilization has in some ways begun to participate in just from Plato. So you start with someone yeah. as uh, Greek sounding as Plato. <laughs> First of all, is Greek East or West? That's a great question. <laughs> Uh, Greeks would just say it's the center of the world, That's my right. Greek friends, so don't worry about it. But from Plato himself, he obviously had just directly deep Egyptian influences, and Egypt was a large place stretching down into what we would call Ethiopia. Uh, he had deep Indian uh, influences, Indian Persian ideas that are found in his works. So we need to get away from thinking of the ancient world as some kind of insular place you know, where nobody's talking to anybody else. In the medieval world, uh, someone like Anselm would write an argument about God and other people would respond to him and attack his argument. Uh, and then he would respond to those responses. <clears throat> so whether it's the really ancient world or the medieval world, uh, intellectual ideas, not as quickly as now, not like doing a podcast or sure. being able to get information out on whatever we call Twitter now. Uh, X, <laughs> yeah. Whatever that means. At this we moment, it's called X. Out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I sort of refuse. I mean, uh, some people in the world still call Istanbul, Constantinople. <laughs> and you're, yeah. <laughs> they take me hundreds of years uh, to adapt to this new name. Anyway, information is quickly distributed. That, of course, wasn't true in the ancient world. But in some ways, there was a good side to that because people tended to distribute the information that was very important, that it stood the test of time or that they treasured. You know, when people fled a city that was being sacked, they would take the great works with them, the works that really mattered, as sacred scriptures, yeah. uh, which is why we have the New Testament and the complete works of Plato. There's a myth that Christians were kind of book burners or not interested in the life of the mind. 
But starting, you know, first, second century, we were already doing philosophy and apologetics and integrating with the Roman world and with other nations. And we're the reason, Christian people, that we have so many uh, of the great works of classical literature. In fact, oddly enough, uh, and it was kind of an accident, we ended up saving more works of classical pagan literature <laughs> than some of our own church fathers and mothers, uh, because the interaction with them had been so fruitful for us. So for people who, who may still be asking the question, like, who exactly are we talking about? We've mentioned a couple of names. We mentioned Plato. We mentioned Augustine. We mentioned Anselm. Who who else are the big names that we're talking about when we're talking about the great books or the canon, just to give people on the same page? So I, <coughs> the canon is for people, not people for the canon. So the canon can change depending on where you live. Sure. Um, I think the way to think about the canon is uh, if I'm going to think about the world Christianly, I'm going to have uh, the books, particularly the Bible, yeah. that shaped Christianity, that made us who we are. Yeah. So the great thinkers of the Christian faith uh, all over the world, but also sort of the language of power here in the United States is English. So the canon for any school I teach in here in the United States tends to be dominated by works that produce the English language, sure. you know, getting right down to the uh, basis of modern English. And so it would include someone like Shakespeare, sure. lots and lots of Shakespeare. On the other hand, I work with a lot of people in places like Georgia, not the state, the nation, <laughs> uh, way over there. And when they take a look at things, they want people to grow up and speak Georgian. A lot of Russian is necessary in that area of the world. And so while we might read some English translations of great Russian literature, Georgians have a rich cultural and literary heritage of their own. And so you might read very little Shakespeare in a place like Georgia, maybe Hamlet, uh, because it actually Shakespeare had a big influence on Russian literature uh, indirectly and directly. So the canon would change depending on where you live. So you're always looking for these root books, mm -hmm. these books that both give you access to the language of power in your particular nation uh, or the language you spoke with your mother. And so the canon can be pretty diverse, uh, but you're looking for books maybe that are over 50 years old. Uh, and when I say that, then people think that is a long time ago. And I guess at your age, it is a long time <laughs> ago, but it's worth remembering that that's basically the Reagan administration. Yeah. So you're looking for uh, books that have been around long enough that we can think abolition of man, C.S. Lewis. That's influenced a lot of people inside a diverse group of Christians. Let's take a look at that. Uh, his novel, That Hideous Strength, very prophetic for some of the things going on in artificial intelligence and in science right now. So let's take a look at those uh, forerunner type books, the great poet Langston Hughes, uh, the Harlem Renaissance. Those have stood the test of time uh, not a long time, uh, but we're still talking about them. Uh, a really good pop cultural example is Walt Disney himself. Sure. Uh, Walt Disney and his team of artists produced a kind of uh, type of film that we're still making in one way or another today. So looking at film, there are lots of different texts. Uh, we primarily uh, focus on books because books were the original kind of um, preserved medium. Yeah. We now can do films and other types of, we can preserve music. 
-hmm. Let's remind ourselves that when my grandfather was born, almost all the music he heard had to be live. Mm -hmm. You could hardly hear any music in a preserved way. You had to be really rich to own a record player. Uh, by the time my grandfather died, almost all the experiences he had, whether on television, uh, whether uh, you know on the phone, they were all um, kind of artificial, like replays of earlier events. And books were one of the first ways that somebody could tell you a story, write it down, and generation after generation would hear a Christmas carol from Charles Dickens. And uh, Charles Dickens, I think great-great-grandson still travels around reading it like his great-great-grandfather wow. did. Uh, and so uh, that ability to preserve something, not just hand it down orally, uh, really enables us to participate in ways we couldn't otherwise. Mm. Though, I want to add, uh, we also interface with people who do pass on traditions in a kind of oral way. That's how we got Homer, for example, yeah. the Iliad and the Odyssey. And there are very powerful, important civilizations that still preserve that. So the great thing about classical education is every topic can be discussed. Every question can be asked. And so the canon is in that sense, less important, like, oh no, I read the wrong book, sure. or I didn't read the Republic by Plato, so I can't <laughs> be well-educated. Then the kind of questions we ask about the world, are we involved in the deeper questions, the deeper understanding? Um, if this sounds super impractical, let me remind you that our economic life, our political life, uh, everything we do or say are shaped by these kinds of ideas and negative ideas, uh, negative ideas we already said about the nature of what it is to be human. Are some people subhuman? Uh, what is it to be human? Uh, what is it to be a man? What is it to be a woman? Uh, what's the relationship with uh, sex and gender? These are not new questions. These are very old questions. They've been asked for a long time. And to go into them as if we're the first generation to ever ask these questions is naive. But we'll make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> and we'll repeat errors from the past. You know, it, it's one thing to make a new mistake. Yeah. Uh, how are we going to deal with AI? Yeah. In some ways, that's a new problem. In other ways, though, technology is never about like the machine. Yeah. It's a way for some people to control other people. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a power, almost like if we have been given magic. Sure. And so people have been thinking about what it means for some people to have the power to control other people for a very long time. And getting involved in the discussion from the very beginning is a great idea. It, it, and you're it, a perspective. What is something that, that indicates that something can, will withstand the test of time? I think there's something about that phrase that feels a little bit subjective for different people because different people have different views of what might withstand the test of time. For example, is there something that you have read recently that you're like, you know what, I bet you this is still going to be around in 50 plus years? Yeah, uh, this conversation is a pretty good example of something that is unlikely to stand the test of time. <laughs> sure. Just because you have me in it. I mean, you know, it's a whole <laughs> device that I can teach. But um, it's not designed to stand the test of time. Yeah. It, we're trying to talk in a way that's understandable, that can be helpful to people, that may uh, draw all of us to the enduring questions and help. But it, it's also a kind of signpost. 
And uh, I love Disneyland. I raised all my kids there, basically, yeah. in Southern California. And signposts to Disneyland are great, but not if you stand and stare at them. Mm. So something that stands the test of time can become a destination itself. You sort yeah. of want to just plant there. It's something that you want to do. And so I read a lot of just fun science fiction. Uh, nobody considers that I know of Brandon Sanderson, a great writer, but boy, he can churn out a 700 page fantasy novel every week. Yeah. I think I kind of <laughs> it feels like, it, yeah. Uh, and I, I think I know he's not a great writer uh, in part because of his skill, like the skill level's not there. Um, you might find a Charles Dickens novel not to your taste nowadays. He writes in a, a kind of earlier manner or with a different vocabulary set. But you can find any given paragraph of A Christmas Carol, and it's just beautiful English. Yeah. Just the name Ebenezer Scrooge, the first time you ever heard it, told you as a little kid a <laughs> lot about that character. Yeah. So there's something enduring where you can think Dickens is a storyteller, not all his stories. Uh, he's going to stand the test of time. When Hamlet, a young man who faces a really hard moral dilemma, it's not a moral dilemma you or I going to face, I hope. You know, our our father is not going to be murdered by our uncle who marries our mother. Unlikely. But we, yeah. we face different moral dilemmas. And Hamlet kind of knows what the society thinks he should do. Uh, he's not sure it's the right thing to do. Uh, and he's haunted. Uh, by the spirit of his father wanting revenge, while simultaneously he loves his mother, he loves uh, Denmark, he's unsure what to do. And so we get these reflections on the nature of life and death and choosing. And to tell you the truth, that's gonna that will speak to people as long as the English language endures, because the great soliloquies matter. Um, I, I will say this, I think we're in the golden age of television. Uh, right now. And so I think some of the works that we're producing on television uh, may stand the test of time. We may be watching uh, some of that programming, you know, 100 years from now, we'll have to translate it into whatever <laughs> the new medium is. Sure. But uh, there'll be a kind of apex of that art in the way um, uh, opera is still being produced. Yeah. But there was a time when everyone went to the opera, where it was a, a popular, the magic flute was something everybody was going to go down and watch. And I think you had a kind of apex moment mm. where things that are going to endure, that are going to last, because they're so seminal, they're right at the beginning, uh, come along. So I would look at, at places like, um, I don't know if it's called television anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to streaming say, right? Content, yeah. <laughs> streaming content that you can binge on whatever... A channel that you happen to subscribe to. Mm. Uh, and so we'll see if that continues. I think it might not. Uh, it appears that we may have reached an end to that kind of era. Uh, you could see three network television yeah. reached a kind of apex moment. It was really good at doing what it did. Mm. And then it suddenly was swept away by new technology. So we'll see. Yeah. I, I, books, as far as it goes, uh, no longer command. Uh, as much popular attention as yeah. they used to. Even something that in its day was a huge phenomenon amongst young adults, like Harry Potter, yeah. mostly was experienced for most students as a film series, not as a book series. Mm -hmm. And so there's a certain kind of nerdy kid that I would have been, and certainly all my kids were, that knew them as a book series. But even a book series like that doesn't have nearly the reach of uh, film and video 
There's a problem with that, mm -hmm. actually, because there's a certain kind of thing that there's no evidence you can do any other way than through the written word. Mm -hmm. For example, you can't make involved arguments uh, to uphold our political order uh, through video. Mm -hmm. uh, we can only do so much in this podcast before everyone's eyes glaze over. Ego, <laughs> my eyes glaze over. No, no more words, yeah. please. I, but some of our problems are complex. You hope your medical doctor can read because a medical journal is going to end up having a very involved, uh, very complex set of medical arguments, medical research that you're going to need. The same thing is true of theology and philosophy. Yeah. Anything that gets at all complicated, I would suggest the written word is still the way to go. And that means love is still going to be uh, that way. I talk to a lot of men my age, and they still sound like they're like 22, 23, 24, because their vocabulary of love, their poetic vocabulary, hasn't developed since that age. Mm. They're still kind of like, like or not like, it's my cuckoo clock. Every time I say something <laughs> crazy, it hey, goes off. <laughs> I, yeah, it's a wired to my neural net. <laughs> uh, so hot or not, kind of. Uh, up or down, yeah. love, they have that word. They have a few swear words that go along with this yeah. uh, for different kinds of things. And that's really inadequate. You know, by the time you're my age, you have complex problems. You've been with the same person. I'll have been with the same person 36 years mm -hmm. uh, soon. And that's a long time. She's heard every story I have, every <laughs> joke, every thought. And so I have to keep growing and developing because the woman that I have to woo tonight, it's the beginning of the weekend as we're uh, filming this, yeah. uh, or whatever you call doing what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, recording, so filming, whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Recording it. Uh, but I, I need a way to woo that woman, uh, not the woman I married. She's more complex. She's more interesting. She's more thoughtful. And I think books still deliver that kind of vocabulary mm. that we so desperately need. You know, if I go to my doctor and say my elbow hurts and the only word he has for this mm -hmm. is elbow, yeah. I need a new doctor. <laughs> like the doctor will have very involved jargon. And I think the same thing is true of, of something even so seemingly emotional, like uh, my love relationship. If I only have two or three words for what I'm feeling uh, as an older man, I what's the glory in living? Mm. You know, what? why would you want to continue in a relationship if you're just repeating the same stale tropes over and over again? Yeah, that's fat. I, I, I'm curious, I mean, if there was a moment in your in your studies, in, in your pursuit of, of going down this realm of thinking, was there a yeah. moment where the connection between philosophy and faith just kind of clicked for you? Yeah, I, I was one of those people that at a certain point, a lot because of my own uh, vices, uh, ways I wanted to be that traditional Christianity just said no. Mm. And I tried the, I'm going to talk myself out of traditional Christianity. <laughs> I'm a philosophy major. I know how to talk. And so, but I could never make that work for me. I'm not, I'm not condemning even anyone who could. Sure. And I, I never could make atheism work. Mm. I, I, I couldn't think myself out of that. But I wanted to be a kind of neo-Platonic pagan, like a high pagan. And my problem was, as I was drifting away from faith and then working really hard to get rid of faith, Plato helped bring me back to faith. 
because Plato and a particular, not even Christian professor I had at the time, in fact, all my philosophy professors demanded absolute rigor of thought, real clarity in what I was saying. They made me define my terms. And then Plato in some ways is a uh, forerunner, uh, a John the Baptist for the Greek people. Uh, there are lots of the church fathers and mothers uh, thought of him that way. There's so many of his ideas. He never saw the incarnation, that the word would become flesh. But he did see that we needed, for example, uh, someone who didn't just seem to be just, but really was just. And in a kind of accident of history, he said that person would end up being crucified. Uh, <laughs> we can't we wouldn't be able to deal with that person. Yeah. Now, it's kind of accidental. He got the impalement, the way of dying uh, so accurately, but it's not accidental. We do that to every great moral man. You know, Dr. King had to die. Uh, he knew that he was in trouble all the time because he was pushing so strongly against injustice. Socrates uh, was executed by the city. So there's a kind of thing that the crooked does to the straight when it runs into the straight. Mm -hmm. And so that was helpful. And then at the end of the Republic, Plato said, you know, it's great. We should be good, whether it's good for us or not in this life, whether it makes us rich or happy, it's good to be good, be good. <laughs> uh, but boy, it would be nice if somebody would die and come back from the dead and tell us that the universe is really just, yeah. that on the other side, it's all going to work out. And he said, unfortunately, we have no such story, so I will make one up for you. And he did, at the myth of Ur. Yeah. Uh, but when early Christians read that, of course, it's impossible in the world we live in, even for non-Christians, not to think, well, that's Jesus-y sounding <laughs> uh, sort of thing. That sounds, that's just weird. How yeah. did that occur? And so here I was trying to move away from faith, but you have to be very careful when you're trying to move away from faith because clarity and rigorous thought and Plato might bring you all the way back from the suburbs of Jerusalem, Athens, to Jerusalem itself. Yeah. Yeah. But is there is there a, a, a work of philosophy that you found yourself just you've gone back to just repeatedly, repeatedly. It's one that you just can't stop thinking about that you go back to a bunch. Yeah, I'll read and discuss the Republic, every Plato's Republic, every year of my life forever. Mm -hmm. I, I think probably the greatest Christian work, uh, short work of philosophy is C.S. Lewis's essay, The Abolition of Man. Mm -hmm. So I return to that a lot. And its novel form is that hideous strength which is not a very good novel, I'm told by my friends who are lit people <laughs> as literature, but it works for me. So yeah. I'm I'm stuck coming back to that all the time. <laughs> I really like the film, uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. It's mm -hmm. one of the first films ever made. Yeah. It's a black and white that we almost lost forever. All the copies of it were gone. Mm -hmm. I think they found it in a Danish uh, asylum, like they had been showing the inmates this film. I oh, wow. have no idea what that means about my taste, but they <laughs> covered it. They put a new musical score to it. Uh, the Criterion Collection version of The Passion of Joan of Arc, uh, I think, uh, is also a great work of philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, so people need to step back from philosophy and say to themselves, it means the love of wisdom. And wherever we find goodness, truth, and beauty, that's a place where this great discussion can begin. So when I stand in front of the David in Florence, mm -hmm. I take students there every once in a while, college students, mm -hmm. I, I'm just gobsmacked. I begin to engage in a kind of wordless conversation with that beautiful piece of art.
Yeah, I only went to Florence once, and unfortunately, it was the day that the museum was closed, so I did not get oh, to see. No. Oh, no. <laughs> it was this, it was unfortunate timing. <laughs> I had a really cruel friend who would say to things like that, "Why Jesus loves some people more than others?" <laughs> no, it's not true. But we enjoyed the beauty of Florence; it was beautiful. But unfortunately, oh, yeah. the Duomo and the uh, Museum were both yeah, closed. Climbing to the top of Duomo, you should go back. It's uh, you can never be in Florence long enough. Oh, we love it. Yeah. We're back to what endures versus what doesn't endure. Yeah. Um, there are some things that you read and you think, I could never come to the end of this. Yeah. So, a professor and I thought about the very end of the Republic for 35 years, mm. like in continuous conversation before he passed away recently. I, I still feel like I should be able to call him on the phone sure. because it, it isn't that you see new things so much. We, it, it is that chewing on what it reveals to you keeps unlocking what's going on. I have no patience. If I weren't a Christian, I would have no patience for people who look at the gospel of John and don't see how wonderful it is. Sure. If if you just like, oh, it's about a sky daddy or something. <laughs> yeah. uh, nor would any of my professors. Yeah. Because uh, as you listen to Jesus speak, as you look at the mastery of what is a very both simple book, but very profound, when you know the background of the term logos, mm -hmm. uh, which in the city of Ephesus, the Greek uh, pre-Socratic philosopher Heraclitus had made the shape of the world, the organizing principle of the world. And in this beginning for Heraclitus was the Logos. Mm. And the world was chaotic, but this served as a kind of bank to the stream, the river of history. And when you hear John uh, using that very kind of language, probably in the city of Ephesus, where his school, his school of thought was gathered. Yeah. Uh, and then you come to the point where he says, and this word was made flesh, something Plato could never, it never occurred to him. It, how would the word, why would the word become flesh? The word is so awesome and good and beautiful that if we saw it, we would never be able to leave it. How could it leave and love us and come? And then John says such an important thing. We beheld his glory, glorious of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace, grace, and truth. And bringing those two things together, uh, I, I feel like you can think about that forever. And there are pieces of Plato that are like that. There are obviously pieces of Shakespeare that are like that. Uh, I listened to Rachmaninoff's Vespers, mm. and I'm not going to come to the end of that. I'm not going to finish exploring the beauty of that. Uh, it, that endures. What happens to us, I'm afraid, too often in education is we're so interested in making things interesting to people, mm. to me, make it relate to me, sure. that we don't force people to do the hard work of growing our pleasures. Mm. Uh, probably listening to this uh, in Southern California are two very dear friends, some of our best friends in the universe, if not the best, uh, who are opera singers there in Southern California. And see, I grew up in West Virginia. The only opera was Grand Old. <laughs> yeah, sure. Make fun of opera. If I went to opera, I would fall asleep, like <laughs> whatever. Uh, but you have these friends and they love it and they're good at it. And I married a classically trained musician, mm. myself, a trumpet player. And so I ended up going to lots and lots of things that would put me to sleep. Yeah. And I could have responded just by sleeping and thinking about the Green Bay Packers, Packer owner. Man. <laughs> summer of love. We're going into the summer of of Jordan Love. Uh, 
I could do that. And I'm, I'm good enough at thinking to just kind of check out. But why do that? Why not grow my ability to find pleasure? We can't do this with everything. But I learned to like coffee because it was grown up drink and I hated it. I preferred Diet Coke, actually. But since coffee was always free, uh, I learned to love coffee. And now I actually do like it. And in the same way, I trained myself. I read, I thought until I could go to an opera and at least for an hour and a half of it, have a good time, Mm -hmm. like understand it, uh, not so much understand it, like enjoy it. You can change and deepen and broaden your taste. And I I think it's a real problem when I meet someone my age or even someone your age, and they're still listening to what they listened to in high school, (laughs) right? I hope by now we have some good nostalgia music, but every year should give you something new, good and true and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Maybe one from the distant past, you know, you pick up the crooners, you listen to a Bing Crosby Mm -hmm. and you learn to enjoy the best of his music, but then you go even further back and or go to other cultures and you grow your ability to enjoy things and i think if we think of the great books and the great conversation that way okay i don't get shakespeare it's hard uh it's written in a way that i don't understand i've never met anyone who goes to their first shakespeare play and has more than a vague clue what's going on (laughs) so you do that and you do that and you do that and i can promise you this centuries of people have shown that the payoff is huge. The payoff is rich. Uh, We too often demand that things come down to us. I'll just remind you that my eighth grade graduate grandparents, that was all the school that was available in West Virginia. Mm. So some of them didn't even make it to eighth grade, sat with a King James Bible written in what was intentionally archaic language at the time the King James was written. And they, with a dictionary right next to them, Uh, in the chair when they studied it. They studied it because it was good for them. And in in one way, this gave them a classical education because learning this kind of root of modern English book, it's overly simple, but it's a little true that Shakespeare, the King James Bible, and, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, maybe a few other things, Book of Common Prayer, shaped the English language. You can't understand Lincoln really, his speeches, if you don't get the rhythm and cadence of the King James, which meant Papa Earl was in that sense better educated to understand uh, Abraham Lincoln's great speeches, the Gettysburg Address, which he would have memorized in the six years he was in school, than we are. We're, We're missing out on this real beauty that he came to know. So I was once asked by a Bible translator, hey, we want to get a translation that relates more to modern English so people will read the Bible. And I had to point out to him that people aren't reading the Bible because they don't think it's important enough to read it. And if, like most people outside of our professions, our reading level is more like seventh grade, Mm -hmm. and we're reading an argument in the book of Romans that's pitched at 10th grade, There's no making the language simple enough for you to follow (laughs) it. So uh, in some ways, my papas and Nana and Granny were better off than we are because they knew they didn't have a good education. Mm. And so in some ways, those things that they had that gave them access to the great conversation, they really prized them. Uh, They didn't expect uh, culture to always dumb itself down for them. Sure. And as a result, they kept growing and developing and producing beautiful art. Uh, bluegrass yep. comes out of that kind of tradition. Uh, the folk songs of Appalachia 
Uh, this is where we get the great Black Renaissance in music, uh, because access to any part of the great conversation can produce greatness. And I'm afraid sometimes we just, what can we stream tonight? Uh, <laughs> and and we don't want to be challenged. Mm, I, I think there's for you. no, yeah, I think there's something that's so interesting about the challenge, about that, about that call to think a little deeper. To, to to use your God-given thinking ability even a little bit more than you're used to and know that these people who have these works that endure, maybe they weren't all believers, but they're still all made in the image of God, yes. and they're still capable of beauty through that and, and speaking to some part— of, of the human condition, it may be a part that that you have seen differently, but to but to put yourself into their perspective, in their shoes, and to see things the way that they might have been seeing them—that's still speaking to something that is true about us. It, yes. it, it, it forces you to, you know, to think. It, it forces you to, as you said, to chew a little bit uh, more towards the bone, which is yeah. where that taste usually comes from if you chew yeah, stuff that doesn't right. have the bone in it's it's it usually doesn't have the same amount of taste well, in it you know i want to make the pitch that it isn't just because it's good for us too it is just what you're saying it's for the joy of it it's yeah. for the pleasure of it uh when i was a little kid my favorite food i hate to confess this uh we were poor enough that i didn't get it very often was captain crunch peanut butter crunch sure. i just thought that was like apex food <laughs> if you have that with milk that was great well, at my age, if that's still apex eating, like I still like it, like at Christmas, I'll sure. have some, but I've had way better desserts. I've had way better breakfast. I mean, breakfast in Paris, man, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's really good. You're looking at uh, a cafe and it's so beautiful. Uh, and so you would hope as a grown up, you would develop more mature taste, mm. you know, it, it otherwise again what's the glory of living so i don't go to shakespeare now because it's good for me in some kind of mental sense i i just took a whole group uh to see a shakespeare play and laughed out loud and had a good time <laughs> that doesn't mean that i won't stream a detective thing uh this weekend uh that will be very simple and formulaic and i'll enjoy that too i could have enjoyed that in seventh grade at one level i'll still enjoy it but I also this week was sitting out in the park, looking at people working hard, doing beautiful things, and I could laugh out loud at that. And so really, in some ways, what we're talking about is expanding our pleasures. Yeah. The other thing I want to add to just amen what you said, it has never been the case that mainstream Christianity, by which I mean traditional, orthodox, biblical Christianity, mm -hmm. was opposed to getting good things from non-Christian people. Yeah. So you can go back to Justin Martyr uh, in the first, second century, a little overlap. Uh, the first people we have writing about the Bible and thinking about the Bible after the generation that produced the Bible had passed away, mm -hmm. were interacting with that, and they were saying, well, this, look, we're going to behave just like what we've been given, just like the Jewish community we came out of, and we're going to look, I love this phrase, from one of the greatest of them, a man named Basil, who uh, built ways to reach out to the poor, ways to help the sick, ways to give hospitality, and fought heresy just as hard as anybody who's ever lived. Mm -hmm. But Basil would say to young men who he would send off to like Plato's Academy to study, he would say, uh, go there and find streams of virtue in that old pagan Homer. 
in things like the Iliad and the Odyssey. And forget about the other stuff. There's there's plenty bad. It's not going to be hard for you to see that. But there are so many strains of virtue. And in many ways, they're preparatory for the greater river to come. It's, it's kind of hard to work out on the Bible because we rightly uh, have a reverential attitude towards it. It's a little bit like fighting with your mother. Uh, you know, there's a pious attitude. I don't mean that in a bad way, yeah. but, you know, your mother's your mother. Yeah. And you want to love your mother. And my mom is really good at arguments. <laughs> she is utterly sharp. If I'm ever good at arguments, I got it from her. But mom's mom. And so they will argue in one way. I, I'm not going to be as ruthless uh, as I need to be with my own ideas and, and with others, with my mom. Uh, and so finding uh, something outside also helps sharpen us uh, because we don't go in assuming it's true. Notice the, the Bible, which I believe is absolutely true in, in everything uh, about it. But notice my reading of the Bible may be false. And so it's much better for me to go to Plato because I know I could list you five things right now that Plato <laughs> was utterly grossly wrong about. Uh, and so I wrestle with him mm -hmm. to, you know, get that sweet meat uh, towards the bone. And that's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so I, my suggestion is unless you want to become a boring person, uh, it's always sad when I meet people that I taught in college and they were more interesting at 18 to 22 than they are now. Like they've become stodgy yeah. in some ways. I mean, they're still youngish, but they're stodgy. Uh, and I hope, uh, like my professor who just mm -hmm. passed away, uh, new film, new ideas. He was always wrestling with things. Uh, he just was better at it at 80 some than he was uh, even when I first knew him at 50 some. So that's that's joyful, I think. It's also hard work. True. <laughs> it's also hard work. So for people who may, uh, who, who hopefully are hearing this and are kind of are starting to get a little interested, like, like this might be something that I want to dive into a little bit more to go back to the classics, to the canon. Yeah. What is uh, something, or I should say, how would you recommend people start getting their feet wet in this? Maybe they've had a fear that yeah. philosophy is over their head. You know, is there something that they can well, do to get started? The good news is, you know, when I started uh, the Tory Honors uh, Program, I was yeah. the only employee sitting in a room. Uh, <laughs> there's super awesome people there. Uh, the nice thing about starting something is the next people are better than you, but <laughs> you were always first. And so uh, that's, you know, George Washington may not have been the right. greatest president, <laughs> but he was the first president. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, I think there are so many resources out there that in one way I have like brain freeze sure. uh, to try to list them. Uh, starting with this, like if you're going to college, St. Constantine College uh, is uh, about $11,000 all in. Uh, that's for a whole year. Uh, and we'll, we don't turn away people for inability to pay and mm -hmm. we don't allow student loans. So it's a no usury way come for a year, do two years of the great discussion. You can stay and get a bachelor's degree if you want, sure. uh, but that's a thing to do. Yeah. And we're working on a master's degree for people who already have a BA, but want to hang out with us like online a little bit, on site a little bit, mm -hmm. and do that kind of thing. And there are other programs like this all over. But I, I think it's more important to go on uh, I know no one uses it much anymore except to talk to their moms, but go mm -hmm. on Facebook. And if you type in classical conversations mm -hmm. or groups like Circe 
uh, they have constant adult conversations about books that sort of put the cookies on the bottom shelf, especially if you've never done this before, and help you get involved uh, inside of conversations and have really good friends, many of them former students, uh, who help lead these conversations. So yeah, we don't need a degree. If we have a degree, we want to enrich and deepen our lives. And the good news is there are now guides. Uh, this is where the Internet's a useful thing. Yeah. You know, you don't have to find the one person in your town who lives in a cave <laughs> at the top of a mountain uh, who can give you insights. Teach uh, me, you know, monk, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's that's right. Uh, you can start this conversation by finding a kind of virtual community, which has its real limits. Uh, let's face it. Uh, we all live through COVID, so we know the limits. Yeah. But look, I can sit here and talk to you, and I feel like we're having a genuine conversation. I. Yeah. Uh, but it would be more fun if I were there. For one sure. thing, it's 105 here right now. <laughs> oh, and, my goodness. <laughs> I don't know if it's 100% humidity, but it feels it's like It's close to it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things where everybody who doesn't live in Houston thinks we're all dead. <laughs> uh, just, we spend the whole day cold because Texans mm -hmm. over-air condition everything. That's right. So it's like 68 in here. You know, <laughs> like, uh, get this jacket, help me. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. I can't control that. No, yeah. So, so, and and that's important for people to know. Is there is it something that you can engage with? And again, it doesn't mean yes. that you have to jump right to reading the Republic or to reading City of God or one of these. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's smaller steps. I've that taught you I've taught classes on vampire literature. I just read. Yeah. Uh, get a graphic novel and work through it slowly, and actually mm. think about the art. You know what goes on. Uh, Viola's Fred Sanders it has really interesting and clever things mm. to teach you about reading a graphic novel, and there are people uh, that have taken that even further. Yeah. Uh, so just read something, and then go from that. I started. I really liked vampire literature. So I started with Dracula, which is actually a pretty difficult book in some ways. I read it last uh, year for the first time. It was fascinating. Yeah, and I, you could spend your whole life just running down the, all the streams of great books and great conversations that Bram Stoker embeds in Dracula. So I advise you to do it. I actually went from reading Dracula to finding out uh, it's Varney the Vampire uh, in Penny Dreadfuls <laughs> that were kind of the basis for uh, Bram Stoker's part of his basis. And I started reading those, yeah. which led me to think about Penny Dreadfuls, which are these cheap pulp like yeah. fiction that people read. Uh, and that unbelievably got me uh, all the way back to Jane Austen. And there is a trail <laughs> that could get you there. And I, none of that is really work. Like none of that is for what I do for a living, uh, which is starting things, educational yeah. <laughs> things. It was more interesting. It was a fun little rabbit hole to go down uh, and think about. I got really interested in circuses. Uh, there's a form of entertainment that has worked and still works in parts of the world for thousands of years that has essentially died in the United States. Hmm. We don't like them. We don't go to them. Ringling Brothers is trying to reboot itself yeah. while, we, while we speak without animals because it caused too many protests. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really died. And it's not even clear that people will go to the circus. What changed about us? And so I did a deep dive on that. Mm. Why does anyone care? I think the answer is this. Um, there are some activities that we can engage in 
that always have the promise of showing us something important and doing something good for us. Mm. If I play, I really enjoy uh, adventure type games. I I more retro type. I'm playing my way through all the Dragon Age games. Okay. I'm just about to finish Inquisitor, okay. which I know everyone else finished 10 million years <laughs> ago. But what can I tell you? Uh, the problem with that is I, I have never learned anything, even on a Bioshock game. Uh, okay, it's okay, yeah. but the plot is pretty shallow. Uh, and there's no rabbit hole unless I start going to books to get where the Bioshock people got their ideas. Right. Now, if you do that, I went from Bioshock to Mormonism to all kinds of other things. Yeah. And once you start doing that, you start understanding your world better because you start seeing the web of the interconnected web of things. And so you're entertained in one way, but it also can be soul transformative. Uh, and that's the best kind of entertainment of all. Mm. Uh, let's put it this way. Suppose you had all the money that there ever was and you never had to work. Your education should still be valuable to you. Yeah. And most people don't get that kind of education, like how to have leisure time. Uh, and it's a great gift that we live in a society that some of us do get leisure time. Mm -hmm. Some people do not. And we should find justice for them to get leisure time mm -hmm. uh, because it's good for humans. Yeah. Uh, put it a different way. A great book's education this is painful to say. I mean, it's really painful to say because I'm thinking of a real case. Mm. It'd be just as good for the person who will cure cancer or the person who will die of cancer at 21. Mm -hmm. where you wouldn't say, why did we give that education to this 21-year-old? Well, I know why we did. Mm -hmm. Because it's what humans do. Yeah, It's a humane thing. Uh, simultaneously, it's likely to produce the kind of person who makes something new, good, true, and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Reynolds... I want to thank you from thank you for your time from this Charger fan to your Packer fan. I want to oh, thank you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, let's see. I think we have I don't know 13 or 14 NFL championships. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chargers. Okay. I see where yeah, this is going. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting cruel now. No, my brother's actually a Chargers fan, so I have a lot of sympathy. Chargers <laughs> <laughs> fan. Well, it's been around longer than you, so the pain that's is. True. That's true. It's it's pain. a little more ingrained, and uh, it's still growing in me. But I get it. <laughs> at, at least you're not a Cleveland Browns fan. That's all. I well, I will agree with that. <laughs> I, I want to thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate Thank it. I, we have the links to your books too in the show notes as well. So I highly recommend people go on and check out your books there as well. Yeah. If you want a crazy experiment, uh, see if you can add a novel I wrote called Chasing Shadows. Okay. Uh, it's my initials, JMN Reynolds. Okay. And it is my bizarre attempt to write a book that you could read on the airplane, be entertained, and then never think about again, that deals with the death of the Russian royal family time travel and dragons okay well it sounds right. it sounds incredible to me so ch <laughs> good chasing shadows chasing shadows jay and then reynolds if i find it i will put it in the show notes as well definitely all right and if you read it i'll come and do a show with you to discuss the ideas in it some of them Love are it. true some uh, of the things in the book happened to me there and you i'll go. let you try to figure out which oh, one okay well now it's a mystery i <laughs> i i appreciate your time thank you so much all right thank you <laughs> Now, let's look at some 
doable steps out of this episode. First, I'll give the same charge that Dr. Reynolds gave. Read. Just read. (laughs) He didn't even give specifics or parameters. He said, just read. I love that. Second, think about the three words that Dr. Reynolds gave. Goodness, truth, beauty. Let these words sit with you this week. How do you see them in the world around you? In what you're reading or where you're walking through or in a a conversation you're having. Third, check out Dr. Reynolds' books from Athens to Jerusalem and the great books reader. I'll put links to those books in the show notes. This has been Doable Discipleship, a Saddleback Church podcast. We'll be back with you again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes. And go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week.